Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Dean Baker, Senior Economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who examines what he believes is corporate media's distorted coverage of inflation in the U.S. economy that blames President Biden. Jamal Abdi, President of the National Iranian American Council, who talks about the numerous obstacles facing negotiators working to restore the international Iran nuclear deal that President Trump withdrew from in 2018. And Nancy Alderman, founder and president of Environment and Human Health, who discusses her group's research into the negative health impacts of wood smoke amid the rising popularity of recreational sources, such as backyard fire pits. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Bolivia's salt flats, with vast deposits of lithium, could be a pathway to expand the use of electric vehicles worldwide. Lithium is a basic component of lithium-ion batteries, which are lightweight, have a long life, large storage capacity, and are easy to recharge. To power the future's large fleet of electric vehicles, demand for lithium is expected to grow exponentially and is likely to outstrip supply in the near future. Tesla, Ford, and General Motors have made big investments in electric vehicles, which sent the price of lithium skyward. Now, global developers of lithium are once again knocking on Bolivia's door, attempting to gain access to one of the largest lithium reserves in the world. Eight foreign companies have been competing in recent months to establish pilot lithium projects, including four from China, one from Russia, and two from the United States. These companies must contend with residents' deep local suspicion of foreign interests, with many seeing them as exploiters of Bolivia's mineral wealth going back to the 17th century. COVAX, the global COVID vaccine-sharing initiative, is falling far short of its goal to distribute 2 billion doses of vaccine to poor and developing nations by the end of this year. According to the Washington Post, the United Nations-backed COVAX initiative will supply 800 million doses of COVID vaccine for 2021. Low-income nations have administered just over 60 million doses, a fraction of the 326 million booster shots that have been delivered in mostly high-income nations. As the highly contagious new COVID variant Omicron spreads across the globe, Poor countries are struggling to get their populations even one shot of the vaccine. A new report finds that at least 120 pharmaceutical manufacturers in Africa, Asia, and Latin America currently have the capacity to produce mRNA COVID vaccines, but have been unable to start production because the drug companies Pfizer and Moderna refuse to share their technology. Because these companies have not been compelled to do so by wealthy Western governments, millions of people across the globe may die due to the lack of access to vaccines, all because our international system is predicated on pharmaceutical monopolies and profits, not cooperation and knowledge sharing. New, more dangerous coronavirus variants will continue to emerge as long as the majority of the world's population remains unvaccinated. 
In mid-September, New York City cab drivers parked their taxis a block from City Hall and announced they would not move until Mayor Bill de Blasio addressed the cabbie's debt crunch, which had compelled several cabbies to commit suicide. The street protest organized by the New York City Taxi Drivers Alliance started out small but grew in numbers and clout until the mayor agreed to a plan on debt relief on November 3rd. Anger among immigrant taxi drivers grew during the pandemic over the unsustainable burden of debt inherited during Mayor Bloomberg's administration when taxi medallions were sold off at record prices. The value of taxi medallions crashed after the arrival of ride-sharing services Uber in 2011 and Lyft in 2014. Later, the COVID pandemic caused taxi ridership to decline by half. Many cabbies work 14 hours a day and still struggle to pay off over $500,000 in medallion debt. As the cabbies' protest camp outside City Hall gained strength, pressure started to build on Mayor de Blasio, who will leave office in January. Union activists went on a hunger strike on October 20th with support from Democratic Socialists of America, as well as immigrant activists. Two weeks later, a settlement was announced where the mayor agreed to cap medallion loans at $170,000 and the city agreed to be the guarantor of the debt. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Rising inflation in the U.S. and around the world is costing consumers more in daily expenses. Recent polls find that the issue of inflation and rising prices are one of the top concerns of Americans that's contributed to President Joe Biden's declining popularity. Inflation was also recently cited by Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, as one of the reasons he recently announced on Fox News that after more than five months of negotiations, He's now opposed to Biden's Build Back Better $1.75 trillion social infrastructure funding bill. Your reporter spoke with Dean Baker, co-founder and senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who discusses his recent article titled The Media's War Against Biden Over Inflation. In the piece, Baker explains why he believes corporate media's distorted reporting on the inflation issue has had a direct impact on Biden's poll numbers less than a year ahead of critical 2022 congressional midterm elections. First off, there's been an effort to blame Biden, and I understand the Republicans doing that. I understand that less coming from the New York Times or National Public Radio. Um, The reality is inflation has been worldwide. So we see a big jump in inflation, not just in the United States, in Germany, in England, in in, uh, Spain, many other countries. This is associated with reopening from the pandemic. So, yeah, we could have maintained 20 percent unemployment, and I'm sure the inflation rate would be somewhat lower. But we had much of the world economy shut down in 220. We opened up very quickly, and I think we should all be happy about that. We got the unemployment rate down to 4.2 percent, which is a very low level. You wouldn't know that from the media, but that's the reality. And as a result of that, that's led to inflation, again, not just here in the United States, around the world, because 
We have these supply chain problems. You had uh, producers in a number of areas, oil just the most visible. They shut down much of their operations in the pandemic. Suddenly, we're back on we're, we're, the demand is back, and they're not prepared to meet that. So that's an important part of the story. The other part that the media has just really been outrageous on is they've had several pieces where they find people are either not being truthful or incredibly atypical. So I'm thinking there's a piece on CNN that got a lot of attention. This person buys 12 gallons of milk a week. That's an awful lot of milk by my, you know, by my reckoning. And furthermore, they say the price of milk's gone up. I think they had 25 or 30 percent. Well, we have data on that. The price of milk's gone up about four percent. So I have no idea what these people pay. Maybe they are seeing a 20. You know, who knows? But if that's true, they're incredibly atypical, both in the amount of milk they drink, but also that they somehow are paying way more than everyone else. New York Times did the same thing with gas. They found a guy who seemed, if you backed out the calculations, bought like 30 gallons of gas a week. A typical person would buy 10. So, yeah, if you buy 30 gallons of gas a week, then you're very hard hit by the rise in gas prices. So this is just incredibly irresponsible reporting. I I should also add that they're saying how these people, you know, they've had other pieces like this, that moderate-income people can't afford Christmas shopping, that their their standard of living is falling. Well, wages at the lower end of the pay scale have risen very rapidly. So workers in hotels, workers in restaurants, they've seen very large pay increases, far outstripping inflation. So basically, they're constructing a world that's totally out of touch with reality and presenting it to people as fact, and it isn't. So your point here is that inflation is real. Of course, it's real. It's there, but it's being exaggerated by the media. In your estimation, what's the motive here in terms of the media, generally speaking, the corporate media's focus on inflation and the exaggerated reports that you've covered in your article? You know, I really can't speak to their motives. I mean, I could speculate, obviously, like anyone else can. I, I, my guess, and I don't know, my guess is that the vast majority of the, the people doing the reporting were, were not Trump supporters, and maybe they feel a need to be balanced. Um, they said a lot of bad things about Trump because, you know, if you reported about Trump honestly, you said bad things about him. Uh, not doing testing because you didn't want to show that people that the coronavirus was spreading. That's Report the facts. That's really, really bad. Um, and you can just find any number of things like that about Trump, of course, organizing the insurrection, refusing to arrange the, recognize the election. I mean, the list could go on endlessly. So reporting the world accurately meant you said bad things about Trump. They may feel the need to do the same about Biden, um, that, oh, we have to be balanced, so we have to say bad things about Biden. I that you know, I'm shooting in the dark here. I mean, I'll let them speak for their own motives. I'm just going to say the reality. They're reporting inflation in a way that's simply not true. Well, Dean, I did want to ask you about uh, 222 and what the economy is going to look like a a year from now. I think it's going to look very good. I mean, I mentioned before we had 4.2 percent unemployment. That's almost certain to fall. I mean, almost every economist would agree with that. That means we're getting to the lowest unemployment levels we've seen in 50 years, which great news. Um, I think we'll continue to see a tight labor market where workers feel they could could quit their job if they don't like it. They can get uh, some pay increases, again, particularly at the bottom end. That's where low unemployment has the biggest impact. And uh, I think inflation will come down to levels that most people, well, again, people always find things to complain about, but that most people consider acceptable. What factor 
traditionally has the state of the economy played in midterm elections? There's a lot of concern about the same people who wanted to overthrow the government taking over the House and Senate next year. Well, what tends to be an important factor is the president's popularity. So where you have a popular president, um, their party tends to do better in midterm elections. Uh, where they're not popular, they, they lose seats. And uh, the popularity of the president depends on the economy. So if we have a strong economy, um, I expect Biden's popularity to come back. It has gone up a little bit in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, still not great, but it's uh, 43, 44. It had been around 40 uh, polls that I saw. So it's gone up some, and I expect it'll go up more. So not making a prediction about the 222 elections, but I, I think things will look much better for the Democrats come November than they do today. That was Dean Baker senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Find a link to his recent article titled The Media's War Against Biden Over Inflation by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The seventh round of talks in Vienna to restore Iran's 2015 International Nuclear Agreement ended on December 17th. But representatives from France, Britain, Germany, Russia, and China, who are acting as mediators in the indirect negotiations between the U.S. and Iran, say that while some progress has been made, they're not yet close to an agreement. These talks are the first since Iran's new hardline president, Ibrahim Raisi, took office in August. After winning the 2020 election, President Biden made a return to the Iran nuclear deal from which former President Donald Trump unilaterally withdrew in 2018, a top priority. Since Trump's withdrawal, Tehran has increasingly defied the 2015 agreement's restrictions, with its nuclear program's enrichment of uranium now approaching weapons-grade levels. As President Biden warns that his administration must prepare other options if diplomacy fails, and Israel's continuing threat of military action to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons, progress in the talks is ever more urgent. Your reporter spoke with Jamal Abdi, president of the National Iranian American Council. Here he discusses his view of the negotiations and the many obstacles that stand in the way of success. This is the seventh round in this effort to restore the nuclear deal, which, of course, you know, as a candidate, Biden, as well as the, nearly the entire Democratic field uh, committed that they would restore that deal. They would return the U.S. to its commitments uh, if elected. And here we are almost you know, a year into Biden's term, and um, the negotiations are not, I think, where anybody hoped they would be. Um, this seventh round is the first round that has taken place uh, after Iran's presidential elections. So we are now dealing, uh, or you know, at the, at the talks, we're dealing with uh, a completely new administration, new negotiators, um, and a lot of the people in charge uh, on the Iranian side were the same people who were kind of in the wilderness during the previous administration um, and vehemently opposed to the deal that the then Rouhani administration struck uh, with the Obama administration, and they were kind of the equivalent to the, you know, the Donald Trumps or the Republican Party over here uh, trying to undermine that deal when the deal got signed, trying to prevent it from going forward, pledging that they were going to, you know, get rid of it. Uh, now they are 
back in charge. And, you know, I think the fact that they've, they've come to these negotiations is kind of a – gave people a sigh of relief. Okay, these guys are, you know, at least committed to pursuing the process to return to the deal. Um, but there was a big question as to, you know, how would they approach these talks? Would they come and would they take kind of a pragmatic position? Would they build off of the work of the first six rounds that occurred since uh, spring of this year uh, under the previous Iranian administration? Would they would they be seeking to kind of close off that agreement and, and you know, dot the I's and cross the T's and here we go? Or do they want to start from the beginning? It sounds like the talks concluded at the end of last week, concluded on somewhat of a positive note. The sides had at least agreed to the text that they would be working off of. So there are no sweeping divergences, but there still is more work to be done than I think um, at least the Western diplomats had hoped. Jamal, what are the concerns about Israel taking unilateral action and uh, committing to a military attack? I think the talks are going to continue into the new year. Um, and, and there's going to continue to be progress. And I just think that the alternatives are so bad that the sides hopefully will get to get to an agreement. However, I think the most likely challenge that we may face is uh, an act of sabotage, again, uh, by the Israelis, uh, an act of sabotage that does little to set back Iran's program sort of tactically um, and does a lot to convince Iran to accelerate and further safeguard its program and to leave the negotiating table. I, I think these, these sabotage acts, these are, these are political acts. This is an act of political and diplomatic sabotage. I think under, um, under the Netanyahu government, there was a much, uh, much louder campaign to kind of signal that the Israelis were going to take this action. And um, I think that was used really to put pressure on the United States and other parties that they needed to take a t- tougher line with Iran. Currently, you know, the, the Israeli, they've been doing visits uh, to Washington. I think the national security advisor is uh, traveling to Israel now. Uh, so, you know, I think the Biden team is, is trying to keep Israel kind of in lockstep with the hopes that they don't scuttle, you know, what's happening. But, but we don't know. It's really interesting, you know, as kind of, you know, disappointed I've been with how Biden has proceeded with these negotiations. He certainly has been better than than his predecessor, than Donald Trump. Uh, and, you know, I think some of what they've done is laudable, but I, I do think it's been too slow. I don't. I think it's been kind of politically very cautious the way they've proceeded. Uh, but they also have a very difficult task, which is that it's not just, you know, the U.S. trying to negotiate with Iran. So they're not just having to negotiate there, but they're also having to negotiate with Israel playing the spoiler role. And then here in Washington, you know, the Republicans have already started with their, you know, the, the song and dance from you know, 2014 when they were saying, dear Iran, any deal you strike with the current president, uh, we're going to tear up as soon as we uh, come back to the White House or if we take Congress back. And so that's a really, really weakens your negotiating position when you're not able to say, you know, strike a deal with us and the Israelis will be at bay and there will not be sabotage. No. Instead, actually, you have Naftali Bennett saying we're not going to be bound by any deal and hinting that the sabotage, the assassinations, these other efforts will continue even under a deal. And then you also have the Republicans saying, by the way, as soon as, you know, as soon as we get the means to, we're going to tear up this deal. And so for Biden, it's a very weak hand that he's been able to play without being able to offer any breath of relief from those from those factors. That was Jamal Abdi, president of the National Iranian American Council. 
Find more analysis and commentary on the Iran nuclear negotiations by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Many Americans have grown up with the idea that wood fires of all kinds, bonfires, fires in chimneys, fires for heat and recreation, are a part of celebrating the colder months. The winter holidays, starting with the winter solstice on December 21st, are replete with symbols of fire and actual fire. But it turns out that breathing in wood smoke is not good for your health. Environment and Human Health Incorporated or EHHI, is a small research and policy nonprofit in Connecticut that's produced reports on a raft of public health concerns such as pesticides, flame retardants, and diesel bus exhaust. After people from all over the country contacted them, desperate for help with the toxic problem of wood smoke, the group took up the issue of wood smoke, produced in both outdoor wood furnaces and the proliferating number of recreational sources like fire pits and chimeneas. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Nancy Alderman, founder and president of EHHI, about the health impacts of wood smoke and a new regulation recently adopted by Connecticut's Department of Public Health that should help some residents looking for relief from the unhealthy effects of wood smoke exposure. Wood smoke uh, has been a problem um, getting into people's uh, homes uh, properties and homes, uh, people have been uh, contacting environment uh, and human health uh, now for well over a decade with uh, serious issues related to uh, neighbors wood burning and the wood smoke getting into their homes uh, and making uh, people really very sick. People have to understand if you breathe it in enough, if you have a neighbor and we've never seen a wood-burning neighbor ever, ever stop their wood-burning unless uh, the, the state comes down on them. They just don't voluntarily ever stop. But if you're breathing in wood smoke for a long enough period of time, um, I hate to say it, but the end result can be lung cancer. I mean, it, it is not benign. Wood smoke has many of the same components as cigarette smoke, but on the road to lung cancer is sinusitis, um, asthma, bronchitis, pneumonia, um, the end result can be lung cancer. So if people can't resolve the problems of wood smoke in their homes and the state cannot or will not do anything, uh, they have to move. They, there really is no choice. You can put in air purifiers, they do a little bit of good, but they will not really uh, protect you. So what we found is that the state will enforce recreational wood burning harms. But when it comes to heating, I've never yet seen uh, the state of Connecticut stop uh, wood burning for heat. And, and that is bad news. Maybe they will in the future, but I've not as of yet ever seen it. So I've never seen them shut down an outdoor wood furnace and I've never seen them shut down an indoor wood stove. 
uh, people claim it's their heating and they can't afford other heating and the state then leaves them alone. Nancy Alderman, do you have any idea of how many outdoor wood furnaces there are in Connecticut? Well, first of all, they're not in the cities. Uh, Connecticut has a 200 foot setback. So if you're in, a t- you know, in suburbia or a city, you don't have them. It's really, it's really in the rural areas that you have them. Um, but the problem is, even if nobody's around the house that has one, that wood smoke does travel for half a mile. And we did do testing in those homes that were fairly far away, and they still had high levels of wood smoke in their homes. So outdoor wood furnaces are very, very serious, and it's why a number of towns in Connecticut have already banned them. Well, you know, wood smoke is one of my very favorite smells, maybe because I have such happy memories connected with it. You know, especially in New England, wood burning is, is something that is, is part of uh, what everybody grew up with. Uh, they never heard before that it was uh, harmful, and they, uh, they don't understand uh, why uh, people are complaining and why they're getting sick. What is really remarkable now, I think for the state of Connecticut and and really uh, is is terrific. I don't know any other state that is doing it. Um, And that is that that the Department of Health, the State Department of Health is saying to the local health departments, to all of them, that if somebody in your district is being harmed by a neighbor's wood smoke and it is getting into their property and their homes, that then they should, the local health departments should then uh, stop the person from burning. What has also happened in the last, really, I would say five or six years is that recreational burning has skyrocketed. That means it's not just heating your house with a indoor wood stove or an outdoor wood furnace, which uh, we uh, came in contact with uh, in the beginning of our work. But now so many people have fire pits, chimeneas, smokers, whatever, that, that the issue is now far greater than it ever was before. It's now really a big issue. So um, it is our local health departments that are empowered to stop uh, wood burning. Uh, It's not the state health department, uh, although they sent the directive to the local health departments telling them that if people are harmed by neighbors wood smoke, then they really need to stop the wood burning uh, to protect people's health. Um, I don't know another state that's doing that. We get complaints from many, many people in many different states and their local health departments are not doing much. That was Nancy Alderman, founder and president of Environment and Human Health Incorporated. Learn more about their research into the health effects of wood smoke and EHHI's work on a wide range of other health issues by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KKFI in Kansas City, Missouri, WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, KMRE in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.